And welcome to the Philosophy of Podenis live classroom and chat room here on the Crusade Channel featuring King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. Here on a Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, 2018, it is also St. Valentine's Day. Tonight we'll be covering lecture number four from Brother Francis Malouf in the Apologetics Lecture Series. And we also will be covering it in our live chat room, which you can find online at my website at mikechurch.com. And the uh, lecture, uh, I believe, uh, lecture number three podcast is uploaded onto the site, and that item is still on the front page. If you click on that one, the link to the chat room is right in there. And I hope you'll take advantage of that. You could also join our email list. Just send me an email, kingdude at mikechurch.com, and I will add you to the email list uh, for the apologetics course, which is nine lectures long. So uh, without further ado, let us bring in our instructor for the evening. Brother Andre Marie, who is with us live at the St. Benedict Center from uh, Richmond, New Hampshire. Brother, good evening. and Good evening to you, Mike. How you doing? I am uh, well and fasting. <laughs> so as my uh, wife told me today, uh, Mike, don't mess with me. It's Ash Wednesday. I've been fasting and praying all day, and I'm hangry right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, yes. Uh, so we've had a, a very, very busy and uh, very long uh, Ash Wednesday today. It uh, began at 3 o'clock this morning, <laughs> and here we are at 6 o'clock this evening and uh, still going strong. So uh, happy to be here and glad to, to get to this discussion on lecture number four. Uh, my take on it is it has it was the most exciting, if you will, of uh, the previous th three lectures. That's not to say there's anything wrong with the previous three, but boy, howdy, there's some real red meat on the bones thrown out in this one. Yeah, and that's Ash Wednesday, too. It's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just punned myself, didn't I? <laughs> uh, yeah, the... the, the um... Uh, but by the way, it, 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 remember charity is supposed to be there in all things. So if 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 you you and your wife find yourself saying to each other, "Buzz off, I'm getting holy," it's not working. <laughs> Buzz off, I'm getting holy. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll make it through Ash Wednesday and uh, our pilgrimage Saturday, which is a little over ten miles which will be preceded by a two-mile version of the pilgrimage on Friday night. So uh, it's a big Lenten week here in southeast Louisiana, your uh, your birthplace, brother. Uh, but I'm right. sure my, you have... In my, my old stomping ground. I'm sure you have plenty of penitential things going on up at the SBC. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, 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 we're in the full swing of Lent, so we're there. Yeah, and uh, the, uh, Apologetics 4 is uh, actually the timing is pretty good um, uh, because uh, this is very, uh, is a very powerful liturgical day today. 
and uh, brother kind of gets into some of the apologetics that uh, don't necessarily stem from liturgy, but they certainly stem from and have their origin in things that are, by definition, uh, Catholic. Um, and as you pointed out on my show today, you know, when uh, uh, other denominations, when they recognize or commemorate or however you want to say it, Ash Wednesday, as you pointed out, uh, how do you know that Ash Wednesday is supposed to be today? <laughs> That's because it's on the Roman Church's calendar as today. Anyways, let's proceed from there. Where would you like to start with uh, Lecture 4? Well, okay, so just to just let's remember something that Brother said last time. Okay. Remember, repetitio est mater studiorum, as Brother Francis always says. Repetition is the mother of learning. And last night, what, what Brother Francis called the uh, last time, rather, last week, what Brother Francis called the great hypothesis um, is that anything that can be done by secondary causes can be done by the primary cause in an infinity of ways. That's something we have to remember because, in, in, in t although he did not repeat it in Lecture 4, I think it's necessarily in the background because he's talking about things. One of the things he addresses is things that the empirical scientists cannot know. So he goes into some, he, towards the end, he goes into some questions about things that scientists absolutely cannot know. It, for instance, they criticize uh, s some, you know, materialists. I hate to call them scientists. It's every scientist is some sort of an unbeliever. Mm. But let's just say the materialists or the or the empiricists. Okay. These these guys say, uh, you know, sneering and mocking at the idea that Methuselah could have lived for nine hundred and sixty nine years. Well, you know, how can somebody live for six nine hundred sixty nine years? Come on. And brother said, brother Francis says. Well, never mind that. How can anybody live for five minutes? And, and when he <laughs> talks about all, all the all the all the millions of things that have to be in place for somebody just to live five minutes, yes, how is it even possible? Right. And this is something, of course, that a scientist can cannot answer, or a materialist, an empiricist. In other words, many of the things that they presume a certain order of things, or they assume a certain order of things, that of course is is observable to to the human intellect. But they act as if because they can observe it, they can measure it, they can quantify it, they can qualify it, they can categorize it, they can do a lot of things based upon their observation and with the with the different kind of advanced technologies, techniques, uh, uh, one one scholar or, or, or scientist or researcher building on the work of men who came before him, um, an impressive amount of knowledge, an impressive cache of human knowledge has been built up over the years. But this order of things that's, that's taken as the basis, what we observe, they can't answer the fundamental questions of why. Right. So one of the things that we have to do is that now, Brother Francis called this class apologetics. I would argue that it could have been called pre-apologetics because it's it's it, a lot of what he's dealing with is giving you some of the fun, foundational principles that you have to have to approach the subject of apologetics. And that's why I think it's great by way of introduction to further apologetics, which we, we're, you know, we're, we're going to work on later. 
Um, but one of these ideas is let's not be intimidated by the empiricists just because they can they can count all the stuff. <laughs> they can exp- they can they can quantify an awful lot because they can observe an awful lot. Yet they cannot answer the ultimate questions about those things, such as purpose. Why? Why was it made that way? Why was it created that way? I mean, I saw something today. It said um, songbirds, scientists have discovered that songbirds have brains that were designed so that they find lifetime mates. Okay, that's interesting. So I'm just assuming that the headline wasn't lying. I'm assuming that some scientist found something that he thinks proves that. It's very interesting. Um, and I, and I, I do I do kind of find, you know, uh, uh, m- monogamous uh, animals in the animal kingdom sort of fascinating things. Um, <laughs> but all that said, why? Why do you do it? They can't answer that. Why did why did why do they have that ability? Why, why are their brains wired that way? They can't explain that. Brother. You know? So. The, the 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 to the to the question how can a man live 969 years the rejoinder is how can we live for five minutes I mean how is it possible um, you can't you Mr empiricist cannot really answer that you cannot even define what life is without circular logic do you remember back Mike when we were talking about when we were in the course on um, uh, psychology yes. And, you know, psychology is, of course, the study of the soul. And we were talking about life. Brother Francis spoke about life. He, he read about, I don't know, five, four or five different definitions of life. And, and you know, he def- Brother Francis defined life as the principle of, of imminent activity in, in a material thing. So... Or rather, the soul is the principle of imminent activity in 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 a, in, a, in a living thing. But life itself is the ability of imminent activity, being able to be active within itself. In other words, everything that we observe in our experience that's not living is transient. And Brother Francis gave the example of there's a wind blowing outside and, and it's fall in New England and he's looking out of his window and he sees leaves blowing all the direction of the wind. And this is, of course, a typical scene in New England in fall. Sure. Um, yet he sees something coming the opposite direction. So all the leaves are going one way and this other thing is going the opposite direction swimming against the stream, as it were, only flying against the air current, and it was a bird. And Brother Francis said, you know, he didn't need to focus on it and, 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 and get a positive idea on what kind of bird he was. He just knew it was a bird. In other words, every, all those leaves, they were dead. They had fallen, you know. And uh, they were only capable of transient action. Something had to act upon them from outside. It was a purely passive thing. Whereas the bird had the principle of of life in its, itself and the principle of imminent activity in itself. And therefore it could go against the wind. Uh, 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 you know, I think it was Chesterton says everybody can go, everybody can go with the stream. A, a, a dead man can go with the stream. Only somebody who's living can swim against it. It was Chesterton. that said so, that. Yeah. So resisting, resisting the current, being able to resist the, 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 the resist like that, that's, that's because you have imminent activity. And this is, of course, what Chesterton, Chesterton's quip, one of, you know, his quotable quote 
is based upon this knowledge that we all should take do take for granted, but shouldn't take for granted. We should think about it every once in a while. That a living being has a principle of imminent activity inside of itself, and that's what makes it living. But the scientists can't talk about this, and they can't talk about why. Most of them don't have, as scientists, don't have a principle, don't have a satisfactory definition even of what life is. They can tell you when something's dead. They can tell you when something's alive. They can't tell you why it's alive. Why? You can't weigh the soul. And remember that experiment Brother Francis talked about where the, the scientists got this guy on a table, a dying man? <laughs> Yes. And they, they weighed him when he was still alive, and right after he died, they weighed him, and it was no, there was not a difference in weight. So the idiots concluded that there was no soul. Well, you know, well, brainless one, who told you that – what makes you think we think that the soul weighs something? It's an immaterial principle. And it's just so funny how a materialist or an empiricist thinks he can disprove a thing – uh, that's spiritual simply because it doesn't have one of the attributes of matter. So, again, the, 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 what, what we're pointing to here is that there are things in the realm of the empirical scientists, in empirical sciences, that the scientists have to presume. There's an order of thing that's there. It's a given because it's observed, and they just kind of have to deal with it. And they can explain an awful lot about it, but they cannot explain ultimate questions. And we have to have a certain confidence when we approach them that they have a complete, total metaphysical inability within the realm of their own sciences to explain ultimate questions. They cannot answer them. They just dismiss them. And, and by the way, brother, I was just going to drop in that in uh, the title of the story that you were re referencing about the songbirds, and uh, from the quote from the scientist himself, he used the word. He used the verb design. Designed by really? who? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th th there's a, there's exactly a, um, th th that's a perfect example of, you know, th th sometimes these guys slip. Now, now, this guy who said this might might have been somebody who believes in God or believes in an ultimate cause or whatever. Um, but sometimes these guys slip and they use a passive verb, especially, you know, created or designed or something like that. And I think for a lot of them, it's an oops moment uh, because they they actually pointed to some something having to do with origins that really um, shows something that transcends their ability uh, to get into as scientists. Yes, um, this is a this is the uh, apologetics live classroom and chat room. You can join our live chat room and ask any questions that you have about lecture number four or anything that you may hear tonight. Uh, the chat room is free. It doesn't cost, uh, don't cost nothing. And it's on my website at mikechurch.com. If you look, uh, under the fold at the top of the page, you'll see six stories. And one of them is apologetics three. Click on that. That'll take you to the live classroom and uh, the, uh, or to the live chat room, if you will, on, uh, um, on, 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 on my site. And again, you can join that for free. Uh, it, you don't have to be a member or anything like that. So uh, let's let's continue, brother. Um, I meant to start tonight with a prayer, uh, as we have been, and I forgot about that, especially given the horrific events in Florida uh, this afternoon. Oh, yeah, with, I just heard about that. Another, 17 now dead. With another diabolical um, uh, out uh, with, with, with another, I'm sure, 
infestation realized on Ash Wednesday of all days. You know, it's starting to become like the pattern here that is starting to emerge. And I'm, I'm sorry to hog up apologetics time, but the 58 murdered in Las Vegas was on a holy day of obligation, a Sunday. People lost sight of that. You think that was accidental? I don't. 17 today is not on a holy day of obligation, but it is a high holy day, Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent. Uh, Diabolis is choosing God's days to execute these plans. Um, and it's just really sickening, and it's heartbreaking when these are kids and teachers at this school. Again, uh, it's just I, I don't know what to say about it other than uh, kind of thankful that we're all penitential, that we're trying to be penitential and solemn today. Because it calls for some solemnity, and you know we began the uh, uh, the mass today. If we if we went with memento morte, remember the dead, indeed on an Ash Wednesday for those children who were mowed down um, before they could even get to the prime of their uh, of their adult lives at a school in uh, in South Florida. So we'll uh, we'll pray for the repose of those souls, brother. Where should we uh, pick up from uh, from here? There's so much again. No pun intended on Ash Wednesday. A lot of red meat on the bone here in Apologetics 4. Well, okay, so um, Brother Francis started with the, with reading the Christmas Martyrology. And what he wanted to do, to, to the reason he read this, is he wanted to establish uh, a couple of things. One of which was, th this, is the, this is what he calls the cosmology of faith and revelation. Um, there's an order of things in the universe. We believe that it's created. And as I told you this morning when we were talking about this, um, somehow we got talking about it this morning, that martyrology that's read for Christmas is, um, it fixes, it situates our Lord's birth according to various uh, world events. It, it it's in the in the year in the year 700 and what is it 53 from the building of the city of Rome. So the building of the city of Rome, you know, the, the Romans dated all their dates according to that. AUC ab urbe condita from the beginning of the city, or from the building of the city. Um, so the AUC dates, if you want to translate them into uh, AD dates. You have to subtract 753 from from our date, and you get the AUC date. Uh, this is this is the um, but, but the, you can they situate it also according to the the Olympiad, which Olympiad it was right. in. Um, so those are two secular dates that are given in the Malarology. But he, um, he talks about it talks about the, the the from the from the transmigration of Babylon from the. Uh, from the dating of the 72 weeks of years, according to the prophet Daniel. All of these are, of course, sacred dates. But then the big one is the first one, which is in the year 5,199 from the creation of the world. So brother, brother makes, makes the point that this, this, is, this is to situate Jesus Christ's incarnation and birth in time, according to very specific dates, some secular, mostly sacred, and the first one is the creation of the world. And Brother said there's nothing really to challenge this dating, no, nothing scientific, certainly not by way of human civilization. There's no building. There are no buildings. There are no, um, uh, there's, there are no written languages, no manuscripts, no nothing to show us a world that's older than that. Um, 
I mean, I, I'm not enough of a scientist to go into all of the um, you know, why it is that they come up with these billions of years. But if, you, if you're looking just at the question of human civilization, it does not go back beyond 7,000 7, years. There's nothing that they can date that far back. That's from human civilization. So what we have in the, in the cosmology of faith and revelation is something that's quite reliable. That was one reason Brother brought it up. But another reason that he brought it up is was to make a point about certitudes. Now, when you're studying apologetics and when you're when you're getting into uh, or actually practicing apologetics by way of arguing with people mm-hmm. uh, uh, or having a dialogue, as it were. Uh, there's nothing bad about an argument, by the way. Argument does not mean a fight. Um, to argue is 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 an, is an exercise in, in reason. But it, when you're actually learning the subject, you're, when you're learning the science and when you're preparing yourself to ply the art of apologetics, one thing you have to be very cognizant of is degrees of certitude, levels of certitude. And, of course, this points to uh, epistemology, which is, the, which is the philosophy that studies knowledge and how, how it is we know and, and the reliability of knowledge. And Brother Francis said, we make a grave mistake when we take all of the truths that we know and stick them on the same shelf. There's a hierarchy of truths, and there are degrees of certitude that come with truths. The, 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 the knowledge that science has, the knowledge that many empirical sciences have, uh, is conditioned. It's conditioned on what? It's conditioned on the data that is available to us now, and, th- and we ha- always have to have we always have to allow for the possibility that there will be a future uh, discovery where we have further data uh, which will contradict that thing. And this is true in all of the sciences. And it's funny, something came up, Mike, just this week okay. that was about this that that uh, was about this very thing. So, Sister Maria Filomena, um, as you know, runs the Saint Augustine Institute of Catholic Studies, and she has a student in this, a gentleman who uh, likes to do a lot of extra reading and, and get get into uh, a lot, get deeper into the subject, but he, he asks Sister a question about the dates that we give people to memorize in, in the St. Augustine Institute of Catholic Studies circles, and uh, according to our um, uh, um, the, the course of studies, I'm trying to remember the, the booklet, syllabus, the syllabus that we have and one of the dates that we have people remember is the dating of Moses from uh, 1500 BC, and we say also that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Bible. Now the church has come out and said that you can't question that Moses is the author of the f- first five books of the Bible. Something okay. that, by the way, no, almost nobody, no scripture scholar believes this today, but this is something that the church under Pius X said you're not supposed to question. Now, the gentleman's objection was this. He said, well, um, Hebrew was not a written language until the people came back from the transmigration of Babylon, something like seven, 800 years after Moses. So it's not possible that, that Moses wrote the, uh, the Pentateuch, at least not in Hebrew, at least not in the Hebrew alphabet that we know of. Uh, maybe he had some early pictogram. He was educated in Egypt, after all. Maybe he picked up a sort of hieroglyphic kind of lang- kind of uh, alphabet and so forth. And S- S- Joseph's email to me. She says, you know, uh, 
you have any suggestions as to how I should answer him? She answered him, and then she wanted to know if, if there was anything she should add. And so I, I sent I sent this to her. Do you mind if I quote from an email, Mike? No, it's please, short. go ahead. So first, the first thing is I found something where this scholar, who I think is Jewish, he's got a Jewish name, gives uh, a refutes with with his own scholarly studies this this theory about the relatively late dating of the written Hebrew alphabet. He says no, it goes back much further, and it's perfectly possible for Moses to have written it. And he's def- he is defending the Mosaic authorship. Not just the authorship, but the actual writing that 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 it was written at that time, in 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 Hebrew. Um, so, you know, th- this man found probably some popular modernist claim. For all I know, it was a modernist claim that was invented in the 19th century, mm-hmm. as Ben Stein said of evolution. It's a quaint 19th century theory. <laughs> um, so no, uh, he said it, it's a quaint 19th century theory. <laughs> Bueller. Yeah. Bueller. So um, the the um, what I added to that though I said look here's a scholar who says uh, I can defend its uh, early origins, but then I added this uh, of my own words I said keep in mind whatever this gent is reading are theories concocted by scholars based upon the data available to them, as is the case with all the sciences few have access to all the data. And many misread the data, hence evolution, hence Galileo thinking that the motion of the earth caused the tides, which even Kepler knew were caused by the moon. Science, including linguistics and philology, which of course would be what's necessary to to know this stuff about Hebrew, must keep revising its conclusions in the face of new data. However, when we have a stable Christian tradition based upon a stable Jewish Old Testament tradition that contradicts the group the conclusions of a group of scholars whose opinion must be open to revision. It is safer and more rational to go with that tradition. In so many cases, for instance, in the dating of the Gospels, science eventually catches up to tradition. (laughs) And what once seemed intellectually avant-garde and daring on the part of scholars just looks stupid in hindsight. (laughs) So and and I I I would I would die on this hill Mike because the empiricists and the materialists think that they can win all these cases yet when you go back and you look at their claims you know remember the stupid Mars rock remember yes that? yes well, and, we, we, and that that was a flash in the pan. And as soon as I saw it, I said, "This is fake. This is this is totally fake. How can they prove this? How can they prove that?" And then people started asking, you know, fundamental questions like, "Gee, how did the thing actually, you know, survive entrance into Earth's, uh, um, you know, <laughs> into Earth's gravitational field? It should have been incinerated." And they said this rock came from Mars, and it's got amino acids on it that that suggest it's got the building blocks of life. So there must be life on Mars. Talk about um, extrapolating, um, you know, uh, 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 some pretty high-level certitudes from pretty low-level data. Yet, how did they, they, the the question as to how this thing exited Mars's gravitational field, how it survived entrance into Earth's gravitational field? They ignored all this stuff. They just published this stuff. What well, happened? Said, well, yeah, uh, well, there's life on Mars. They, they they had the conclusion, and the, and then they found the rock that I, I don't even know why they said it was from Mars, but it was so it was a fraud. 
And a lot of a lot of science is like this. It's junk science because they have their conclusions and they just you know, cram the data into it. But we have to remember, every time scientists uh, uh, try to get us against the ropes, every time the empiricist tries to get us against the ropes, we have to realize, A, this guy's theories are all, all necessarily by his own admission and by his own science subject to revision when further data are discovered, number one. Number two, he is incapable according to his knowledge within his field, I, I, I stress, because a scientist can, of course, be a believer, but within his science, he is incapable of answering the ultimate questions as to why it is that way and why it was, why it was made in the first place and whether it was made in the first place. He's incapable of that. All he can do is observe what exists now, cannot assume that it was always in that state, cannot assume that those conditions always pertained, and, and yet he has to assume an awful lot in order to extrapolate his theories. I think that's a pretty good explanation there for some of what is in the first segment of Brother Francis's lecture number four on the subject of apologetics. This is the apologetics uh, cl a live classroom and chat room here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth. From Radio Size Speakers, uh, this uh, broadcast will be available as a recording sometime in the next couple of days on my website at mikechurch.com. There was a small error in the upload of episode number three or of recording number three. Uh, it was repaired earlier this afternoon, so uh, all three of the previous uh, three discussions here with myself and Brother Andre and Marie and your questions in the classroom chat room on my website at mikechurch.com are now up and available free of charge on my website at mikechurch.com. Brother, there was a uh, another part, well, there, there's several, uh, I actually took some notes on this one, <laughs> several other parts of apologetics number four that we talked about today, and uh, David Simpson and I, when he finished his True Money show today, he and I uh, discussed this a bit, uh, and one of the things that struck me as, okay, Brother just shut down the evolutionists in one sentence. <laughs> the, Which sentence was that? The, Sa the Saganists in one sentence. Billions and billions and billions. And uh, I got so busy this afternoon, I, I, was, I was scanning the episode trying to find this quote so I could play it. So you'll have to rely on my crummy imitation of Brother Francis and a paraphrase. But what he basically says is, as soon as they, meaning the scientists, as soon and they're, and they're and the promoters of scientism, as soon as they try and uh, discuss the beginning of the universe, and as soon as they start throwing out, you know, billions and billions and billions and millions of years or however many years, they make the fundamental fatal flaw in their argument. They assume the existence of matter. Yeah, they, 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 I wrote that one down, too, and I'm trying to find it in my own notes. Um, it's brilliant. Okay, so the, 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 hypothesis, it, it, the, uh, the hypothesis that matter was always there, that's where they get the, that's it. That's where they get the billions and billions. He said, that, he said that's where billions and billions is taking us, to this theory, this assumption, this presumption, uh, that matter was always there. As I say, for us, it's a given. We observe it. Everyone observes it. We all have we all have the senses. We all we all have a rational intellect. We can observe it. Sure. And, and, and but they can say nothing of origins. And in fact, 
what they say about evolution and what they say about so, so many similar things in science and even, and even in anthropology and other things is assumes something contrary to one of the actual known physical laws of the universe, and that is, what is it, the second law of entropy, that things are winding down. Yes. They assume, they assume a, 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 that there's a, there, are, there are higher gradations of perfection that go chronologically. You know, you go from less perfect to perfect. You go from chaos to order. <laughs> but the second law of entropy says the opposite. The second law of entropy says things are winding down. And, um, you know, all of these things that, that, that prove to them the Big Bang show a certain uniformity of motion and so forth. They, they can't, first of all, they can't prove the Big Bang. It's, an, it's a, strictly speaking, it's an hypothesis based upon what was observable at the time of, of um, the, the cosmos. Several things have intervened since, like um, planets and moons and so forth, with um, rather surprising orbits yes. that seem to defy the theory of uniform motion away from a single focal point in the cosmos. So that would seem to defy the Big Bang theory. But the, 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 the point of it all is they have to assume for their hypotheses that there was a constant state in the universe, unless there's some glaring evidence to the contrary. For instance, um, take our own planet. You like to point this out. Uh, what's that stuff that people take to get healthy that's grown in Scotland, that seed? Flaxseed? Flaxseed. Yes. Now, wasn't it you? I think I learned this from you that that was from grapes. Yeah, it's, it's uh, baby grapes. That's right. And it was proof that that one time, and they know this apparently historically, that they could make wine on Scotland, whereas you can't now. So if we look at Scotland today, and we look at Scotland's weather patterns today, and over the over the years that we have it actually recorded, we might assume, with no further data, that Scotland always had a, 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 a climate that, you know, in summer ranged from this temperature to that temperature and fall and winter and so forth, had, had this various um, um, range of temperatures. Yet, then we make some discovery like this, or, or somebody trips across some medieval manuscript uh, where they talk about things that they grew farming techniques or things like that. And you say, well, you couldn't possibly do that in Scotland today. That must have been something different back then. Mm -hmm. So, again, we have to keep revising based upon further data. And, of course, a lot of all this fake science that we've got now with uh, climate change, global warming uh, under a new name, um, it, it it's based upon um, – you know, faked data. They've they've monkeyed they've monkeyed the they've they've cooked the books to well, come up with these conclusions. Well, they ignore the data that's inconvenient to to the uh, hypotheses, or should I say, to the scam. And I'll just give you one example. Um, uh, and brother couldn't have known this at the time because the research hadn't been done. But we live in an era, and I believe uh, that since we believe in the creation story, it's the era, <laughs> the Holocene era, era is what it's called, right? The Holocene is believed to have been to have begun about uh, nine, ten thousand years ago, maybe maybe twelve thousand years ago. The dating is inexact. But what's important about the Holocene? 
So important about a Holocene is that it began about 10 degrees warmer than it is today. Now, how do they know that? They go up into the Arctic, which isn't supposed to exist if it's 10 degrees hotter, right? It's all going to melt, Al Gore tells us. So they go into the Arctic, (laughs) and they do these things called ice core samples. And what they do is they have these auger bits. They're like six six inches in diameter. And they drill down into the ice, uh, into the permanent ice, and they go sometimes 40, 50 feet down, brother. And then they, uh, there, there's a way that the, that the ice can be then capped off. And then a, a crane, an A-frame basically is used to pull the auger bit out. Now, it's a hollow bit, kind of like a door saw, if you will, or a, uh, a, a doorknob saw, if you will. And then when they pull it out, inside is an ice core sample. They keep it below freezing, and they and, and they can study it. Now, what they what's fascinating about it is they can go and they can you you can look at it physically with your eyes, and you can see oh, it's like rings on a tree, but it's going vertical. Now, what does that mean? Well, those are the layers where the ice was built up. Now, wait a minute. How could ice be built up if the temperature wasn't changing? So, that's one thing. Or if there wasn't a uh, an accumulation of, of of organic matter, but you further you down you go, the deeper you get down into the ice core, the farther back in time you're basically going, and they can uh, take samples of this ice and uh, they can thaw it out. And as soon as they thaw it out in a vacuum chamber, they get an uh, an immediate assessment of how much CO2 was in the atmosphere at that time or in the snow. Uh, And they get a pretty decent picture of what the weather would have been like. And what did they discover? It was hotter then then, than it is today. Now, if it was hotter then than it is today, how is it that life survived? And this goes all the way back to what we would say is the recorded history of man, which is what? 7,000 years, maybe, if it's that yeah, long. Yeah, about, about that, yes. About 7,000 years. Well, what a coincidence. Well, the Holocene ice core samples go back about seven, 9,000, as I said, 10,000 years. I'm not sure exactly. And this is a pretty good record. I mean, there, there's a scientific argument about the ice core samples. So it started hotter than it is today at the dawn of recorded human history and yet here man is still today very much alive and a lot more men today than there were when it was 10 degrees hotter than it is today. Yeah, we know because we have an overpopulation problem, right? <laughs> so I, I, I pretty much say that that destroys the argument that the earth must be cooler in order to sustain life and for it to, to be plentiful. Uh, if, if anything, uh, the, the warming or the uh, beginning of the Holocene says the opposite. Also, they say that the Holocene uh, began at the end of what? The last Ice Age. Well, the Ice Age is not convenient. Uh, doesn't or Ice Ages do not fit in to the creation story. So there's, and again... How do you collect data on this? It's happened so long ago. Um, you're better off with the creation story is the point. And we're here because God wants us to be here. That's, it's a lot easier of an answer than scientific hypotheses. 
Yeah, Brother Francis made an argument or made the point in in tonight's lecture that that according to St. Thomas, uh, the world was created in the most uh, perfect of conditions, uh, and it was you know it was created in 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 good order. Uh, but Brother Francis is according to the scientists, it's or the empiricists, it's the very opposite. Uh, that that it was created in this chaotic state, this imperfect state, and it moved towards some sort of perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get order out of chaos, which that is not that that does not fit in with the laws of physics, uh, as we understand that that does not fit in with the second law of entropy, that you go from chaos to order, and in our human experience we see we see the opposite happening. We see or we see uh, order breaking down into chaos. Into chaos. <clears throat> it takes an intelligent being to put take a take anything in our own experience. If you have something that's chaotic, to put it in order, it takes intelligence. It yes. absolutely requires intelligence. It requires hard work. It requires requires diligence. It requires efforts, application. Uh, oftentimes a, lo- a great deal of knowledge and so forth, and, and virtue to, to, to make it happen, depending upon the, the arduousness of the task. Uh, think of, you know, think, you know, if Trump actually could um, uh, drain the swamp, imagine what a feat that would be to take that uh, moral anarchy and, and, and political chaos and, and put order to it. Everybody knows, anybody who's thought about it and knows anything about it would know that that would be a Herculean effort. It would just be, a, uh, imp- imp- probably it's impossible. Now, if that were to happen, uh, it would take a lot to make it happen. Yet, now you're just talking about something that's very tiny in the order of magnitude of, of the entire universe, right? Yes. You're talking about a small segment. But when you look at the order of things as they as it exists, and when you realize, as, again, what Brother Francis said, never mind 969 years, how does man live for five minutes? How is that even possible when you, when you consider all the millions and probably truly Sagan-esque billions of things that have to be sort of conspiring to allow a man to live for five minutes on this planet. If we're a little bit further from the sun, we'd freeze. If we're a little bit closer, we'd, we'd roast. Um, and, and it's got just the right atmosphere. We have just the right minerals. We have just the right um, co- composition of gases and so forth to, to sustain us. And then there's the miracle of life itself and the order that exists in each individual thing. So the the argument from intelligent design is what I'm what I'm what I'm hinting at here. Whenever a scientist in his own if, if he if he left the office the night before if he left his laboratory the night before and it was an absolute mess if they had a you know a, a drunken scientific uh, office party <laughs> and somebody got into the test tubes and made some <clears throat> wicked brew and they all got snockered and had a wild party. And the head scientist had a, you know, I, I don't know, a, a beaker on his head by the end of the night. Um, and then they all went home and they came in the next day with headaches and everything. But they found that everything was in perfect order. What would their little scientific minds conclude? Well, that somebody went in there and put it all in order, right? Somebody went in, the maid or whoever, the, the cleaning lady or the, or the cleaning man or whomever, went in and put everything that they had left in a state of chaos and, and, and um, you know, debauched confusion. 
back into a state of order so that they could come in the next day and actually work. All the test tubes are in the right place. The, mi- the, the microscopes are in the right place. The, 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 the beaker was back off the guy's head and put in the right shelf and all. When, when you see order, you know immediately intelligence. Intelligence. You know immediately intelligence. Only a moron or a, a, an ill-willed person can see something go from disorder to order and say, it just happened. Now, brother, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I wanted to get into, um, I'm not sure why uh, Brother Francis introduced uh, St. Maria Greta into this, but he insisted on in, in warning the students or the class that even though this book has never been approved, I'm still going to read it, and there's good yeah. things in it. <laughs> yeah, it's Venerable Maria de Greta. Ven- She's venerable. still, I think, venerable. Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it, well, he read it for a couple of reasons, um, one of which was to show gradations of certitude. Um, he said, you know, this is beautiful, it's very pious, <clears throat> but you can't defend what she says with the same degree of certitude that we can defend what the Bible says. You know, or, or we can defend, you know, dogma that's been uh, defined by the church as having been revealed by God. You know, I, I would I would die a martyr, I hope. Okay, if, if there was a, if I got to choose what I could die a martyr for, uh, I could die a martyr for any of the defined doctrines of the church, for the, for the Trinity, for the Incarnation, for, you know, the, the, the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I would I would um, be blessed to die a martyr for that. But am I going to die a martyr for what uh, Venerable Maria de Greta said is the way that the nativity of our Lord took place. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, 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 first of all, even if what she saw was a true, you know, mystical vision that she was given, um, we don't even know if she, if she dictated, did she write this down herself? Did she dictate it to somebody else who could have embellished it? These kinds of things do happen. Um, so Brother Francis said, let's not put all of our truths on the same shelf because the, sh- the shelf could break. And he didn't say that. I- I'm saying that. If we cram all of the truths that we have on the same shelf, if we don't realize that there's a hierarchy to them, then we're, we'll, 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 we could fall on our faces. And that goes for everything. That goes, that goes even for scientists. I mean, they have to realize among themselves, the, the, the good ones, the, 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 the intellectually um, coherent and um, honest ones will admit that there are gradations of certitude that they have. There are things that are theory that they, that they base upon accepted fact. Um, not everything that they say is subject to revision. It's only their theoretical conclusions that are subject to revision. Um, so, so they they have to admit, if they're honest with themselves and with us, that that there are gradations of certitude. The same is true in every science, and and theology is a science. So we we have to have gradations of certitude. And if and if and if we're going to defend a, a, a pious idea that we have about some saint. Um, uh, with the same to with with the same intensity uh, and the same dedication that we would defend the fact that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, then we have a problem. We 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 have there's something disproportionate and there's something out of order. And remember, Brother Francis talks about how wisdom is 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 something that orders knowledge. The knowledge that we call wisdom is not merely knowledge. 
and it certainly isn't data. <laughs> uh, the knowledge that we call wisdom is ordered knowledge. It's knowledge that is that is hi hierarchically, uh, taxonomically uh, graduated in such a way uh, that some truths are more important than others, and uh, some truths become the sort of the the ruling truths which govern the way that we even think about the other truths. And, and the, the empirical sciences in themselves don't lead us to wisdom. And this is not to derogate from them. They don't. Philosophy leads us to natural wisdom. Theology leads us to supernatural wisdom. The, the empirical sciences can give, an, give us an awful lot of human knowledge about the created order of things, but it is entirely in the realm of secondary causality, whereas both philosophy and theology orient us towards uh, ultimate causes. Ultimate causes. And, you know, I talk about this on uh, the uh, Mike Church show uh, often, what is true, conformity of the mind to reality, and that uh, the true philosopher and the person that is really truly looking at any given uh, situation in human events, as Jefferson described them, um, and really wants to know what's going on, maybe for, for the purpose of trying to avoid or prevent something or uh, prepare for something in the future, um, is ultimately going to seek ultimate cause and ultimate purpose. And, of course, you know, when we're dealing with human affairs, uh, we find, and, and and I think Brother actually mentions this in, you know, there's another fascinating part. With this, let me stop rambling and get to the point. Brother says there is never a time during the ages of faith when the problem in uh, Christendom could be linked to too much dogma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he insisted that dogma is, um, yeah, that, that dogma is our strength. Dogma has always been the strength of, of the faithful. Uh, the strength the strength of the Catholic ages was dogma. That's an exact quote that I wrote down from it. Well, uh, it is. By the way, Mike, before we wind down, yes. uh, there's something that I want. There's another thing I want to throw out. Please get to it. That I don't want to. I don't want to omit. Um, he's, Brother Francis again talking about how we how much we don't know. You know how much science science doesn't know. Um, he said, you know, scientists will ask questions like, how is it that a homing pigeon knows to go back to where it came from? You know, how, what is it? And truly, it's admirable when you look at, at what some of these animals do. The mm -hmm. homing pigeon is one example. Then you've got, the, my goodness, these eels. Remember Brother Francis talked about those eels um, uh, that could, I think this is in cosmology, they, 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 all of the eels of the world apparently breed in one place, and then they go and they and they swim elsewhere, spend most of their lifespan, a considerable amount of their lifespan in that place. Then they go swim back, they and and breed, and the next generation comes. So they 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 travel thousands of miles to and from where the breeding grounds are. Um, to get to where they're going to finish out their lifespan. And it's just like normal, like this is what they do. Like some people get on the subway in New York to go to work. These things travel thousands of miles um, uh, aquatically um, to go from where they were hatched to where they're going to spend much of their lifespan to their adults. Right. And they go back and breed. 
And this is a tremendous mystery. How is this possible? But Brother Francis says some of the simpler things are, are also impossible to explain. Why does a stone, why is a stone attracted to the center of the earth? We know that it is, but why is it? And if you say gravity, all you're doing is giving a name to the attraction. You're not saying why. Right. Why? Why is it that this stone, which is inanimate, it doesn't know anything, um, it, 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 it's it's not living, so it's not capable of of um, imminent action. So the action on it is transient. If you give out the name gravity, yes, you've named it, but you're not saying why it is that it happens. So you say, well, uh, you know, bodies with mass are attracted to one another. Okay, fine. Fine. Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> you cannot, you will not, it's like the the irritating question of the little kid, you know, gee, mommy, why, do, why does zebras have stripes? You know, and the mom, after a while at the zoo, especially if it's like, you know, it's like Candace and she's been fasting all day, um, is going to say something like, shut up, I'm getting holy, you know, uh, they, get, <laughs> they get irritated, right? I mean, the, 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 eventually they say, look, I don't know, that's just the way God made it. Now, some people would say, that's why people say that religion is a cop-out. But when you think about it, what other explanation of origins is there? There is order in the universe. We know that order comes from intelligence. That's our experience. And there is design. It is intelligent. And we know that a stone is, is attracted to the center of the earth. So we have to assume that it has something in the in the intention and the purpose of the creator who made this thing that he built it that way and yes. not some other way. Yeah, and uh, we got about a minute and a, and a half left, brother. And I, I I would say finally uh, that in the uh, <laughs> final analysis of the lecture number four and the point that uh, Brother Francis is, I believe, trying to to drive home and to prepare his students and us, if you will. For you know, brother said that maybe these are pre-apologetics, but to prepare us for apolog uh, for a, a lifetime spent defending something, and he says this in um, in Philosophia Perennis too, brother, that uh, we have to know what we are defending, and he's preparing us cosmologically speaking for what he thinks, and I I, I agree with him is the basis, like the grounding, like we started in philosophy of Perennis with, uh, with, uh, uh, with logic, and then we went on to cosmology. And, and Brother explained the whole time, uh, Brother, and you know this, he explained the whole time that the reason that we started in that order is so, yes, we start with cosmology so that we, and it has to do with the study of this world, so that we are grounded. And uh, I believe that the, the, that the defense of creation is just an extension of some of the, what we learned in cosmology, and it's just preparing us and grounding us in, okay, you're on solid ground when you say that creation can be defended and that you have to defend it, and you've got to be ready to defend it before you can defend the rest of the faith. We've got one minute to wrap it up. Yeah, uh, well, uh, that was well said, Mike. I mean, again, we're, we're talking about, in a sense, pre-apologetics, things that you, principles that you have to have before you can even um, really dig thoroughly into the science of apologetics and uh, apply, apply the art of apologetics. Never be, never be intimidated by a scientist because, A, 
No true science can contradict true faith. It's just impossible. No true faith and reason go together. No true science can contradict true religion. And, and, and with we that, have to always keep before our, our minds the higher metaphysical principles, such as that anything that is done by a secondary cause can be done in, in an infinite number of other ways by the primary cause. And if you're not prepared to admit primary causality, Mr. Empiricist, then don't pretend to answer questions about origins. You yeah. can't simply say, yeah, you Christians are all wrong without giving an alternative uh, 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 reply. And most of their alternatives are absurd, like, you know, aliens um, um, making um, DNA replicate on the back of crystals or something. Precisely. You ever seen that nutty scientist in Ben Stein's well, documentary? <laughs> Brother, we have to go. That's it, because i got to get Reconquest on. Hey, so that's good. We'll see you next week here for another episode. Uh, we'll do lecture number five of apologetics here. It's Mike Church and Brother Andre and Marie saying, may God bless you and Mary keep you.